Well, I spent uh, 11 years as a pastor uh, in a small farming community in northwest Ohio, and corn was king. And uh, there were fields as far as you could see that were full of corn. And if conditions were right and the yield uh, was good, not only did the farmer have a good year, but, but so did the community. And so did the church. Our church budget oftentimes was made or lost in November as the uh, farmers harvested their corn and took it to the elevator. What's amazing is that, uh, uh, is that 70 years ago, 100 bushels uh, an acre was considered a really good yield. Today, a good harvest might be double that. Uh, better seeds and fertilizer, machinery, uh, better production uh, techniques have made it possible uh, to feed more people with less. It's amazing. But did you know that God is also interested in increasing your yield uh, let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 15, and hear what the Lord says to us today. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Now you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, these words of Jesus... Uh, on the last night of his time spent with his disciples in the upper room. It was just hours before he was carted off to be crucified. And in this teaching, Jesus seared into their collective uh, consciousness a picture for them to remember when he was gone. And it was an image of a vine bearing fruit. Uh, those who connect themselves to the vine... And remain in Christ, he said, will bear much fruit. Together, uh, they will fulfill the command of Christ, which he will later tell us is to love each other. Now, this metaphor of a vine is often used in Scripture to refer to God's people. Uh, in Isaiah 5, the prophet sang a song about a, a vineyard that was planted, cultivated, cared for, but yielded a bad harvest. We find the same theme in, in Psalm 80 and in Jeremiah 2. And so this idea of the people of God compared to a vine would have been very familiar to his disciples. God had planted his people and expected them to produce fruit. And so Jesus picks up on this Old Testament idea and applies it to his followers. He says about himself, I am the vine. And not just the vine, but he says the true vine. His followers are the branches. And Jesus in this passage makes it clear that bearing fruit is not an option. If there's no fruit, the branch is cut off. But even the fruitful branch is going to be pruned so that it can bear much fruit. If you've ever had a grapevine, you know how important pruning is. 
during the, the winter months when the vine is dormant, you prune back uh, last year's growth as much as 85 to 90 percent. Now, that seems kind of counterintuitive. You know, if I trim back that much, I'm going to have less fruit next year. But the opposite is actually true. You'll have more and better fruit, but only if you prune. Now, of course, we're not fruit. So what does Jesus mean when he says the Lord will prune us? Jesus is talking in this passage about our sanctification. Jesus is talking about the second half of the gospel. You see, this sermon series comes from research done by the Barna Group concerning how people grow in their spiritual life. And they found what they called ten stops along the way towards spiritual maturity. And what the research has shown is that most Christians stop once they get to number five. They profess faith in Christ. They find forgiveness. They get involved in a church. This is the first half of the gospel. But the second half of the gospel is where real growth begins. The second half of the gospel is where our sanctification happens. And two weeks ago, we learned that uh, sanctification begins with a, with a holy discontent with our spiritual lives. We reach that point in our spiritual development where we're no longer satisfied with where we are, but we want, we want to go deeper. We want this more intimate relationship with Christ. And often that is accelerated as we experience a sense of, of brokenness in our life. Today we look at stop number eight, and it's called dependence. And this is the turning point for real change and transformation. You see, what happens as we experience brokenness is the realization that we are helpless to change. You see, as long as we think that we can regain control of our life, we will, we will never experience the strength and the freedom that comes from our utter dependence upon God. And this is the part of the pruning process. It is God at work in our lives, perfecting us in love. And the way that we stay, uh, the way we get there is to stay connected to the vine. Here again, verse 5. Jesus says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I love it that our Lord says, uh, much fruit. Not a little fruit, not some fruit, but a lot. And to do that, he says, we have to remain in him. Now, the King James Version translates it abide. The, the Greek word is, is mino, and it means to stay, to, to continue. God does this work of transformation, but you and I, we have to stay connected, we have to keep trusting, we have to keep believing. Now, this goes against my nature. I think that if I hustle enough, if I produce enough, if I work hard enough, I'm going to see fruit. I think if I try harder, if I, if I do more, I'll be fruitful. But we already have found out that activity doesn't necessarily translate into spiritual growth. The secret, Jesus says, is not necessarily to do more, but to stay connected to him. Now, I hear Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think, well, you know what? Actually, I can do a lot of things without Jesus. Right? I can buy a house. I can start a career. I can get married. 
I can have children. I, I can even preach and lead a church without Jesus. <laughs> of course, it'll have no significance, but I can do it. Sometimes our ability to, to do something is taken away from us and we are helpless to stop the course of events from taking place. Have you ever been to that point in your life where you've got no option? <laughs> no option except to trust God? That happens to most of us, don't you think? One of my favorite stories is uh, the story of, uh, uh, of those Hebrew, Hebrew men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Their nation has been destroyed. They're taken as slaves to Babylon. They lost their home. They lost their culture. They, they lost uh, the relationships they cherished. They, they would even lose their Hebrew names and the practice of their religion. They would live and die in a place that they never wanted to be. They would never go home, never. You know the story, King Nebuchadnezzar builds an image of gold about 90 feet high. It's absolutely amazing. And the project is complete and it's time for the dedication service. But the king finds out that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are planning on not worshiping the image and he's furious. He calls them in and he questions them. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now that seems insane, doesn't it? I mean, what's the big deal? Bow down and, and pretend to worship the image. You know, they might have reasoned among themselves, you know, God knows what's in our heart. Let's just go along to get along. You ever said that? We can compromise a little. Or maybe they thought to themselves, you know, no one will be harmed if we worship these gods. There, there's no harm to anyone. This is a victimless sin. Let's just do it. Now, it must have been tempting to think of these things. But listen to how they respond. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So it looks like all their choices have been taken away. I mean, this is a mess. It's a conundrum. Where is God? God doesn't seem to be providing a way out. Things look hopeless. Except they do have one choice left. They choose to trust God and to surrender themselves in absolute dependence to the plan of God. King, you may think that you have all the power, but we serve a God who can save us from your plans. And even if he doesn't, our mind is made up. We will not serve your gods. Well, you know how the story ends. The music starts, the people bow down, but then through the crowd there's this ripple of noise. It was quiet at first, but but was eventually heard even over the music. And finally, nobody is looking at that statue of Nebuchadnezzar's anymore because of the front of the throng. Three of the highest ranking officials in the country are still standing, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, while everybody else is on the ground. And in an act that either looks like monumental courage or suicidal folly, they refuse to bend their knee. They refuse to bow their heads and nobody has much doubt about what's going to happen next. 
The Bible records that the king was furious. No one had ever said no to him before. And he ordered them to be thrown into a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. It is so hot the soldiers who threw them in were, were burned, were killed, but not the three. In fact, they are dancing in the flames. And now there's not just three in the furnace, there are four. And the fourth looks like the Son of God. <laughs> no, God doesn't deliver them from the furnace, does he? But his presence is in there with them. You see, these three young men had no way out unless God made the way. And so they chose to place their trust in God. They depended on God. They believed that God could perform the miracle, but they were prepared to die even if God did not. How do we do that? How do we abide? How do we learn to trust less in our plans and more in God's? The church talks about the means of grace, and they help us to stay connected with Christ. But first of all, I want to just define what fruit looks like. Jesus tells us in, in verse 12, my command is this. He says, to love each other as I have loved you. You see, the fruit of a mature life is what? It's love. It's taking on Christ-like character. It's the process of, of becoming like Christ in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our lifestyle. We, we become one. We become united with Christ. You see, God's will is your spiritual maturity. God is totally committed to that happening. Romans 8, 29 says, For those God foreknew, we also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You will grow into Christ-likeness if you stay connected. So, here are some things that we need to know. And it's this. First of all, spiritual growth is intentional. It requires a commitment. It requires you staying connected, but it also takes some work and effort and some time. God does it in, in you. God is committed to, to it happening, but it requires cooperation from us. We're not totally passive in this. It's just like you want to get in shape. What do you do? You don't just sit on the couch and watch TV, right? I mean, if that's your plan to get in shape, may not work very well. You have to make a commitment to it. You need a plan. You may even need a trainer, someone experienced to help you develop a plan and then encourage you to follow through. Getting in good physical shape, it's not automatic. In fact, just the opposite. I don't know about you, but once I hit 20, it was downhill from then on. <laughs> You've got to be proactive. Another thing you need to know is that spiritual maturity, spiritual growth requires developing some habits. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of 1 Timothy chapter 4, says this, Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gym are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. So spiritual maturity is learning some spiritual exercises and then sticking with it until they become habits. And it's a process that takes time. It takes perseverance, so no shortcuts. It's a journey that will last a lifetime, and that journey is different for all of us. But you see, spiritual maturity is demonstrated more by our behavior than our beliefs. It's not just about information. It's about transformation. It's about character. It's about lifestyle. It's about integrity. It's about walking the walk. 
See, I, I think it's great if you know the Bible characters. I think it's great if you can quote Bible passages from memory. I think it's great if you know beliefs and, and doctrines and the difference between eschatology and pneumatology. But that doesn't necessarily imply spiritual maturity. Jesus said what? He said, by their fruit you will know them. You will recognize them. And then, of course, it's about relationships. <clears throat> See, we don't grow in isolation from each other. We develop in the context of relationships. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do bands. We need each other. You know, Hebrews chapter 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another up towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Relationships absolutely essential for spiritual growth. The Bible teaches us that fellowship is, is not optional, it's mandatory. In fact, 1 John teaches us that one of the proofs that we're walking in the light of Christ is to have fellowship one with another. Why? Because the quality of your relationship with Christ can be seen in the quality of your relationships with others. If you think you're maturing spiritually, it's a real test to see whether it's true or not. It's how you treat other people. Love God. Love others. Now, what are some of those means of grace that I mentioned earlier? These are simply things that, that the saints throughout the ages have found that are the core, that are the essentials, that are the foundation for spiritual growth. And, the, of course, the first is prayer. Start the day, end the day in conversation with God. If you haven't already, carve out 30 minutes in your day to sit down, to pray, and to listen, to meditate. If that's impossible in your schedule, then learn how to pray during your day. Uh, Brother Lawrence wrote a little classic called Practicing the Presence of God in which he describes how he learned to pray while washing dishes. <laughs> it can be done. Keep a prayer list. Keep a journal of people who have asked for your prayers. Check them off when, when those prayers are answered. But my friends, there's a form of prayer that goes even beyond this. Paul refers to it in, in, in 1 Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing pray without ceasing boy wouldn't you like to get to that point in your spiritual life where you can have this unbroken connection with God going on all the time you see the the ancient Christians knew that learning to be still learning how to be silent was the doorway into this kind of prayer that it involves listening to the spirit to be still enables you and I to see and to hear into the spiritual realm Oh, this is hard for me. It's a struggle. The other day I was by myself in the house and I decided I would spend some time in, in silent prayer. And while I was meditating, an emergency prayer request popped up on my phone and, and I began to pray in my usual way. But I began to hear the Spirit direct me in a different way. And as I was praying according to the Spirit, I felt something happening in the spiritual realm. And, and I heard the, the Spirit tell me that the young man would recover and the very next day, he was discharged from the hospital. Did my prayer have something to do with that? I hope so. I think so. But I would never have heard from God if I had not taken the time to listen. Because the more you practice listening, the more you'll hear from God. He is so eager to talk to you. And of course, regular Bible reading is a means of grace. 
Again, Jesus says in verse 7, he says, If you remain in me, listen, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and they'll be done for you. That's quite a promise. Now, I, I study the Bible quite a bit in preparation for teaching and sermons. But I also need time just to read it and allow God to speak to me through it. I find that reading three or four chapters a day takes me through the entire Bible in a year. I think Bible memorization is also a great way just to fill your mind with God's truth. Regular worship, confession, fasting, serving others, faith sharing, generosity, these are all means of grace if you want to stay connected and abide. I think one of the few positive things that come out of the pandemic is that you and I have been forced to slow down, haven't we? Our habits have changed. Things aren't the same. And I hope that you will take advantage of this gift and refuse to go back to the, to the frantic, anxiety-filled, cluttered life. By slowing down, we can be more focused. We can be more purposeful to enjoy a simpler life with those whom we love. You see, my point is, is that the life of dependence is a surrendered life. And those words are hard to hear. Most of us are raised and taught to be independent. We don't want to hand over control to someone. We want to be in control. It can be a good thing. I always enjoyed being a, a runner, and, and I had some natural talent as well. In high school, I, I joined the track team, and it was really hard at first. It was challenging because I didn't like doing what the coach told me to do. He made us run a lot of miles and work hard, and we had to do these things called fartleks, which I hated. You sprinted for 200 meters, and, and, and then you ran slow for 200 meters, and then you do fast again and slow and do, and you keep doing that until either your legs fell off or you threw up. It was a lot of fun. And then he'd take us to the, to the highest hill in my hometown, and he'd make us run up and down, up and down. And oftentimes, rather than listening to my coach, I was looking for a shortcut. I'd always look for a, a way to get out of the workout. <laughs> but I began to notice I was becoming a, a better runner. I began wondering if maybe my coach knew something that I didn't know. That maybe I needed to surrender to his guidance. That maybe he knew more about how to be a better runner. And I began to listen to him, to learn from him. To be guided from him. The other day I heard that my coach was ill, so I, I sent him a good well or a get well note, and I told him that I was now a preacher. I'm just hoping that doesn't give him a heart attack when he finds out. Listen, surrendering control of your life and submitting to his call is the best thing you can do for your life. And when you do that, you're agreeing that from now on. You belong to him, that he is in control, signed, sealed, and delivered. We give up our independence, and we accept our new identity in union with Christ. Now, it's nothing to fear, because you're surrendering to a friend. In verse 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, 
I have made known to you. And so Jesus is a friend who loves you, not an enemy who wants to exploit you or harm you. And he will make available to you enormous resources. Oh, life will still be challenging. The battle for your heart and your mind and your soul will continue. But God is responsible for the ultimate results. Don't worry about the future. Because your new boss, he has that too. And it will all turn out according to plan. According to his plan. Let's pray. God, our Father, not only are you a good father, but you are a good farmer. Thank you for your gracious work of pruning in our lives. This morning, we give you full permission to prune out all of our self-dependent and all of our codependent ways. Lead us, O God, into the freedom of life and the flow of the Holy Spirit. For I want to bear fruit. I cannot do it apart from you. And so teach us this in the very depths of our soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.